Let's go ahead and start with a word of prayer, and then you can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26, beginning at verse 47. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we come today to this very significant event, Jesus' actual betrayal and his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. So if you have your Bibles, open them, please, to Matthew chapter 26, and we'll start at verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must so be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. There has been this gathering of storm clouds on the horizon for some time. We have been seeing it ever since Jesus entered Jerusalem in triumph on that first Palm Sunday. And now that storm is beginning to break on Jesus' life. He's shared that last meal with his disciples in the upper room. He's instituted the Lord's Supper, which is to be this continuous reminder to his followers of what he was about to do, about what his death would ultimately mean for them and for future generations. After Jesus concluded that meal in the upper room, as we all know, he crossed the Kidron Valley and he went over into the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane actually was an olive grove in the first century. And if you go to the Holy Land today, you can visit the location of the Garden of Gethsemane and there are olive trees there. As a matter of fact, olive trees live for a very long time. There are trees there that were actually witness trees to the events that we are describing here in the 26th chapter of Matthew. Trees that were actually there, they're over 2,000 years old, that were actually alive when Jesus walked this earth on the night that he was betrayed. If you think about these events, particularly this arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, there is a sense in which this whole thing seems rather ludicrous. You have these temple guards the chief priests, the elders of the people, making their way toward the Garden of Gethsemane. They've got torches and clubs and swords there. They're going out to arrest God Almighty, the creator of the heavens and the earth. 
There's also a sense in which they are going, Matthew tells us, under the cover of darkness. And they're going to do what? They're going to arrest the one who is the light of the world. As I said, it seems ludicrous that men think that they can somehow thwart or control the plans of God. When we think about these events, um, it raises a number of questions. Uh, it raises questions like, why now? Uh, why was it that the Jewish religious leaders felt that they had to arrest Jesus at this particular moment under the cover of darkness? Um, the reality is, is that Jesus had been in their presence teaching publicly in the temple, teaching publicly in the streets. They had had any number of opportunities to come and arrest him. Uh, Jesus himself acknowledges that fact. He said, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. Day after day, I sat there and you had the opportunity to come and arrest me, but you never did it. Why was it that the Jewish religious leaders felt that this was the time? There are perhaps any number of reasons as to why they felt that this was the moment to act. Uh, one certainly was the fact that the crowds, at least under the cover of darkness, were not present at this point. Uh, we know that Jesus had entered Jerusalem, as we said, in great triumph, having just raised Lazarus from the dead. Uh, Jesus was being acclaimed as the hero of the people. Now, those attitudes were beginning to change. There's no doubt about that. But a lot of that was due to the instigation of the Jewish religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, who were talking down on Jesus. But this much is clear, the crowds were not present under the cover of darkness. So if there was any concern that there might be an uprising among the people, that they might somehow defend Jesus, this would have been the time to do it when no one else was around. Another reason why the Jewish religious leaders perhaps felt that they needed to act at this particular time was because the Passover was upon them. This was the high Jewish feast day. This was the celebration of their deliverance from captivity in Egypt all those centuries before. That had been the defining moment in their life as a nation. And so the Passover was a very important feast for the Jews. And the last thing they wanted was to have some sort of a damper placed on that great celebration by the death of this man. And so it may very well have been that they felt that they could not wait until after the Passover. Jesus might very well slip back into Galilee, but on the other hand, they didn't want to arrest him in the midst of the Passover, so they felt perhaps this was their last opportunity to act. Another reason why they may have come under the cover of darkness, and this is not stated explicitly in the text, but you can see um, some suggestions that this might have been something that was going on in the minds of the Jewish religious leaders. It may very well have been the fact that they were frightened of Jesus. They may have come under the cover of darkness at this particular moment with armed guards because they really didn't know if Jesus was arrestable to begin with. There were some things that, that suggest to us that they were actually fearful of Jesus. If you will, keep your finger there in Matthew and turn back to John chapter 7. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I want to show you two incidents in the life of Jesus that suggest to us that even the Jewish religious leaders acknowledge that Jesus was no ordinary individual. He was no typical human being. The first is in John chapter 7. This was one of the Jewish festivals. It was the Feast of Booths. 
Jesus and his disciples had gone up to Jerusalem. The Jewish religious leaders thought that this might be a good opportunity, since Jesus was there in the city, to arrest him and bring him to trial. So they had tried this sort of thing on a previous occasion. But I want you to notice what happened on this previous occasion. And this must have been in the back of their minds as they came out at the time of the Garden of Gethsemane. John chapter 7, Jesus is in the city of Jerusalem. And we're told that the Jewish religious leaders sent officers to arrest Jesus. We'll start at verse 32 of chapter 7. Then the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, about the fact that he might be the Messiah, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Again, they think he's going to slip away, so they've got to act immediately, and they send these officers of the Pharisees. These would have been temple precinct police, temple guards to go and arrest Jesus. But I want you to notice verse 40. When they heard these words, Jesus preaching, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him in? And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? How have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. What's happening here is that they send temple guards to arrest Jesus, the same temple guards that would ultimately arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane sometime later. But on this initial occasion, they send the temple guards to arrest Jesus. The temple guards get there. When they actually listen to what Jesus is saying, they are captivated by his teaching. So much so that they go back to their authorities, they go back to those who were their superiors, and report that they haven't brought Jesus in. The Pharisees and the scribes are outraged. They want to know why. And the answer they receive from the temple guards themselves is no one has ever spoken like this man. And the scribes and the Pharisees are outraged. They see that Jesus has deceived, at least that's their perspective. They have been deceived by Jesus. So they're acknowledging the fact that Jesus was a great teacher. But there's another occasion flip forward in John's gospel to John chapter 18. John chapter 18 describes the same events that we're looking at right now. It's the story of Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the second attempt by the temple guards, instigated, of course, by the Pharisees once more to arrest Jesus. Perhaps some of those temple guards are thinking about that previous occasion. They're a little anxious about this. They know that when Jesus speaks, he doesn't speak like the other Jewish religious leaders. He speaks with power. He speaks with an authority that is, not, that is his own. It's not a derived authority. And so we're told in John chapter 18, they came out to arrest him. Let's start at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden 
which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus, Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. That's the critical phrase. Jesus came forward. In other words, these men didn't actually have to go and take Jesus by force. They didn't have to drag him off like an animal. When they came, Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, knowing that this was the fulfillment of the Father's plan for his life, did what? He went forward to meet them. And he asked this question, whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. Verse 6, when Jesus said to them, I am he, look at what happens. We're told they drew back and fell to the ground. They drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Isn't that interesting? Jesus is not acting in any kind of aggressive way other than to go out and meet them. He can hear the commotion. He knows that they're coming. He can see their torches, their lanterns. And he goes out to meet them, and he asks a simple question, whom do you seek? And when they say, Jesus of Nazareth, and the Lord says, it is I, I am he, we're told that they immediately fell to the ground. Now, we don't know why they fell to the ground. Was it some sort of divine compulsion? Just the fact that they were in the presence of the Son of God, the Word made flesh, the one who had created the heavens and the earth, or was it the fact that they remember that previous occasion where this man was one who spoke with authority? We don't know. But one thing is very clear. They acknowledge the fact that Jesus is unique. Jesus is different. So it may very well have been the case as we go back to Matthew chapter 26, that they decided that they needed to come under the cover of darkness because they didn't know how this was going to play out. And the last thing they wanted was to be humiliated publicly in the presence of of the people. But as we see from the text, Jesus didn't put up a fight at all. Another question we want to ask ourselves is about Judas. Now, Judas, of course, plays a prominent role in this particular portion of the story. And many people have asked the question for centuries, as a matter of fact, why did Judas Iscariot do this? Why was it that he betrayed Jesus Christ? I mean, Judas had been a witness to some of the most extraordinary events in the history of the world. And yet here he is, the one among all the disciples who decides to betray Jesus into the hands of his enemies, knowing full well that Jesus is innocent. Why would Judas Iscariot do that? Well, any number of answers have been given over the centuries. Uh, some have suggested that it was greed on the part of Judas Iscariot. He was eager for money, and we do know that he was a man who used to steal out of the purse, the common purse that the disciples had. And we do know that he did receive money for betraying Jesus, although it wasn't an extraordinary amount of money. It was 30 pieces of silver. Sounds like it was a lot of money to us, but that was about the price for a slave in the ancient world. 
So perhaps greed had something to do with it, but we don't know if that was the only motivation. Others have suggested that perhaps it was jealousy, jealousy or resentment perhaps. Now, Judas perhaps expected that Jesus was going to come and be that kind of Messiah that would drive out the Romans, who would reestablish the Davidic dynasty, bring back the glory days of David and Solomon. And as he's getting to the end of Jesus' life and ministry, he begins to realize that that's not the kind of king that Jesus came to be. Perhaps some commentators have suggested that the betrayer himself felt betrayed. Perhaps he felt that Jesus had led him on to believe that that was the kind of Messiah that he was going to be, and now, lo and behold, Jesus was going to be a very different kind of Messiah. We really don't know why Judas Iscariot did this, and I suspect we will never know exactly what was going on in the heart and the mind of this man. The only explanation we can reject out of hand are any attempts to somehow exonerate Judas Iscariot and get him off the hook. And believe it or not, there have been people, there have been commentators and scholars who have suggested that Judas really was not such a willing participant so much as a victim. You know, we live in a culture in which nobody is responsible for their own actions. Everybody, it seems, is a victim these days. And some have suggested that that was the case with Judas Iscariot. Uh, some commentators have even gone so far as to suggest that Judas really was a believer in Jesus, really did believe that Jesus had come to be the Messiah, the kind of Messiah that would drive out the Romans, but Jesus was dragging his feet. And so perhaps Judas felt some dramatic action had to take place that would force Jesus' hand. The only problem with these alternative explanations is that there is nothing there is nothing in the scripture that indicates that that's what was going on in the mind and the heart of Judas Iscariot. In fact, it's just the opposite. Everything in the scripture seems to indicate to us that this was a man who had turned his back on the Son of God. And Jesus himself says it would have been better if he had never been born. So there may be any number of reasons as to why Judas acted in the way that he did, but the only explanations you and I can reject are those that would attempt to let him off the hook, any attempts that would somehow try to exonerate Judas. Now, tragic figure or not, as I've said before, there are some lessons, some very important lessons, I think, that we can learn from Judas Iscariot. He is mentioned in this account not simply because he plays a part in the historical narrative. Judas is mentioned here because we are meant to learn from him. And the primary lesson that we need to learn from the life of Judas Iscariot is that proximity to the Lord is not enough. If Judas is anything at all, he is a severe warning to those who are mere adherents to religion, but do not take it seriously. J.C. Ryle, who was the first bishop of Liverpool in England in the latter part of the 19th, early part of the 20th century, said this about Judas Iscariot. He said he was a chosen apostle. He was a fellow laborer. He was a witness to the miracles. He was a professed believer. No one doubted 
the sincerity of Judas Iscariot. Now, Jesus is the one unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and the one from whom no secrets are hid. Jesus, of course, knew the blackness that was in Judas's heart, but the other disciples apparently did not. From what we can gather from the biblical record, not a single one of them actually suspected Judas. Remember that in the night of the Last Supper, when Jesus had that meal with his disciples and he announced that one of them was going to betray him, no one's head turned toward Judas, naturally assuming that he was going to be the one. In fact, Peter leaned over to John and said, ask him, who's it going to be? For all we know, Peter assumed, because of the weakness of his own nature, that he was going to be the one who would betray Jesus. But no one automatically assumed that it was going to be Judas. Judas had all of these advantages. It reminds me of what the Apostle Paul in Romans says about his fellow Jews. He said they have been given all of these blessings. Theirs is the prophets, and, and theirs is the law, and, and theirs is, you know, the giving of all of the blessings. And yet somehow they had rejected God's Messiah. Well, here was Judas with all of these advantages. And there are many people today who likewise have advantages, religious advantages. It may very well have been that they've been raised in the church. They've experienced the sacraments of the church. They've been baptized. They've received the Lord's Supper. They've been confirmed. They may even come from a Christian home. They are in close proximity to religious things, close proximity to Jesus. They hear his word spoken on a regular basis. They hear his name, but somehow they have never made that personal commitment to him. And if that's the case, they are no closer to the kingdom of God Despite their proximity to religious matters, they are no closer to the kingdom of God than Judas Iscariot. We have to remember that it is grace, always grace, my friends, and not place that makes you a citizen of the kingdom of God. I almost hesitate to say this, given what's going on right now in our country. But, you know, you can get into the White House riding on somebody else's coattails. You don't get into the kingdom of God on somebody else's coattails. As one of my friends likes to say, God has no grandchildren. So if we learn anything at all from Judas, it's not enough to be close to religious things. It's not enough to be a member of a church. It's not enough to have been confirmed at the hands of a bishop. You have to make that personal commitment to Jesus Christ. And apparently it was something that Judas never did, and as a consequence, he was lost forever. This is why Peter, in his second epistle, writing to the church, said, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Some translations put it this way, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. Never assume that simply because your parents were Christians or your spouse is a Christian or you've been raised in the church or somebody's poured water on your head that you are indeed a follower of Jesus Christ. Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and your election. But there is another person in this account who figures prominently as well. 
And he too is mentioned not only because of the role that he played in these events, but also because we are meant to learn from him as well. And that other prominent figure, of course, is none other than Peter. Impetuous Peter is the way I like to describe him. Take a look at verse 50 again. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on him and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us who this companion of Jesus was, who this disciple was that drew his sword and attempted to cut off the head of the high priest's servant, because that's really what he was doing. Now, this follower of Jesus was attempting to kill the high priest's servant. But the high priest's servant apparently moved and he cut off a portion of his ear. Matthew doesn't tell us who this was, but John does tell us who it was. So keep your finger there in Matthew and just turn to John. It's always important to make these cross-references. Again, we don't get a complete picture in just one of the Gospels, but when you read them all side by side, we get a much fuller depiction of what was actually taking place. And we're going to see that particularly when it comes to Jesus' trials, the trial before the Jewish religious leaders and the trial before the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. But John chapter 18, all right, again, describing the same events. Verse 6, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Verse 10, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Matthew doesn't tell us that it was Peter, and I think there's a, probably a very good reason for that. Matthew was writing fairly early on uh, in the Christian era. John wrote sometime later. As you know, John was a very old man, exiled to the Isle of Patmos when he was writing a lot of his works, particularly the book of Revelation. Peter, by that point, may have been gone. But when Matthew was writing, Peter was very much alive. And so it may have been out of respect for Peter, who was by this point the leader of the apostolic band, that Matthew fails to mention him. But we get a picture, at least, of Peter's temperament. In one sense, what Peter was doing was an act of defense. He was trying to protect Jesus, and there is a sense in which what he is doing is, is admirable. Remember, it was Peter who said to Jesus when the Lord set his face toward Jerusalem, Lord, I will go with you to prison even unto death. And Jesus had warned him. Jesus had said, look, the time is coming when you will deny me three times. But Peter didn't believe that. Peter was absolutely convinced that he would be loyal to Jesus. And there is a sense in which that's probably what he was attempting to do here. So just try to imagine the scene. We know that Jesus had gone into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. He had taken three of his disciples off to a lonely place. He'd left the others behind. He took with him Peter, James, and John, and he said, my soul is sorrowful to the point of death. 
He says, watch with me, pray with me. Jesus knew what was coming on the morrow. He knew the kind of death that he was going to suffer. We looked at this last week. We said, this is holy ground. And so Peter knew very well that Jesus was in a state of agony. But in spite of all of this, we're told that Peter, James, and John became weary. They fell asleep. Jesus came back, and he would rouse them, and he would say, can you not watch with me one hour? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, and he'd wake them up, and they'd say, okay, Lord, we're going we're gonna to pray with you, and Jesus would go off a, a little bit distant, and he would pray, and these men would try to pray, but again, sleep would come upon them. Their eyelids would get heavy. They would drift off into sleep. So imagine that scene. Have you ever been in that situation where you're just so tired, you're trying to stay up to watch a movie or to read a book, and no matter how hard you try, the spirit may be willing, but the flesh is weak. You keep nodding off, drifting off, and then suddenly something will jar you. That's, must, that's what, the way it must have been for Peter. He was, he was drifting off to sleep once again after Jesus had asked him to stay awake, and all of a sudden there's this commotion. This company of soldiers is coming, led by Judas Iscariot. You can hear the snapping of the twigs, and you can see the, the lanterns making their way, and you can hear the clanking of the equipment. And all of a sudden, Peter wakes up. He sees that there's an armed guard. He draws a sword, impetuous as always, and he swings to cut off Malchus's head. And Malchus weaves to the side, and he cuts off his ear. That's the situation here. It's, it's Peter being impetuous. But it's Peter who is also vacillating, isn't it? Because this same Peter who is so courageous to take physical action and even try to kill one of these armed guards, it would have been a foolish thing to do. There was a company of soldiers. The disciples could have never fought them off. But nevertheless, Peter tried to do it. And yet it's the same Peter who a short while later, when Jesus is actually taken into custody, does what? Drops his sword and runs away. This is a reminder to us that you and I are weak and vacillating as well. We can be impetuous at one moment, courageous one moment, and the next moment, cowardly. And that's because in each and every one of us, as in Peter, there is a mixture of the good and the bad. And the test comes very often when we least expect it. Now, just as there are lessons that we can learn from Judas Iscariot, there are lessons, I think, that we are meant to learn from Peter as well. Uh, Jesus teaches Peter three things in particular. First of all, when it comes to the Christian life, the use of the sword, Jesus says, is dangerous. Look again at the text. Verse 51, and behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. This is a general principle that Jesus lays down, that people who live violent lives, generally speaking, come to a violent end. So this is just practical advice that Jesus is giving to Peter. Those who live by the sword, they're going to perish by the sword. If you live that kind of a lifestyle, that kind of reckless lifestyle, 
it normally leads to a very tragic and disastrous end. That's an important lesson for people living in our day. In this age of lawlessness, we do not even have a final decision on this election, and yet people are rioting all over this country. It's a reminder to us that when we live lawless lives, we generally come to a lawless and tragic end. That's the first thing that Jesus is saying, that violence is not the answer. That's what he was saying to Peter. You think that violence is the answer, but violence is never the answer to anything. Violence begats violence. Here's the second thing that Jesus says to him, and this is more spiritual than practical. Jesus is simply telling Peter that the use of the sword is completely unnecessary given the circumstances. Verse 53, he says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. Jesus is saying, Peter, think about it. I, I, am, I am the son of the Almighty. Do you not think that if I was in grievous need that the Father would not send help? It's interesting that the term here used is legion. This was a reference to a Roman legion. A Roman legion was approximately 6,000 men. So you do the math. 6,000 times 12 is what? That's 72,000 angels. Jesus is saying, Peter, this is unnecessary. My fate, my life is in the hands of God. And if I really needed the help, do you not think that the Father would send 72,000 angels to defend me? But here's the third lesson that Jesus imparts to Peter, and that is this that the use of the sword under the circumstances is mistaken. He says, but how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? We saw last week that Jesus was agonizing over the prospect of his death, the kind of death that he was going to die. It was certainly going to be an excruciating death in terms of physical suffering. But it was more than that. It wasn't just the physical suffering that Jesus was going to have to endure. It was the mental and spiritual agony that he would likewise have to face. It was the idea of being separated from God, something that you and I have known from the moment that we are born, something Jesus had never known. And yet we notice that as Jesus prayed over the course of those hours in the Garden of Gethsemane, he became resigned to the fact that this was the only way, that this was part of the Father's will, that this was the only means by which humanity could be saved, and indeed that is why he had come into the world in the first place. And so he is resigned to his fate, and that's what he's saying to Peter. He's saying, Peter, all of this is unnecessary. Violence never gets anybody anywhere. Violence begets violence, and it will end in a tragic death. The sword is unnecessary because God is capable of vindicating and delivering me if that would be his will. But I have resigned myself, Jesus says, to the fact that this is not the Father's will. The Father's will is that I should be, in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, betrayed into the hands of my enemies, mount the arms of the cross, die for the sins of the whole world, and be raised again. And that's one of the reasons why when Jesus does appear before his accusers, 
before the high priests, Annas and Caiaphas. It's why when he stands before Pontius Pilate, he doesn't feel the need to defend himself. The prophet Isaiah said he would be like a sheep before its shears. He would be silent. Not just resigned to his fate in this sort of hopeless way. Well, there's nothing that could be done about this, but rather resigned to the fact that he was fulfilling the Father's plan. Those are three very important lessons for us as well. In the midst of everything that we are facing, we must never forget, my friends, that God is still sovereign. We can look at the circumstances taking place in our own nation right now, and we can despair. We don't know exactly how this is going to work out, who's actually going to be elected, and we can despair if our candidate doesn't win. But Jesus reminded Peter that God is still the Lord of the universe. He is still sovereign, and that is where we need to place our hope. Now, some people over the centuries have concluded that when Jesus told Peter to put away his sword, that those who live by the sword will perish by the sword, that Jesus was somehow endure, um, endorsing pacifism, that as Christians, there is never a time when you and I are to take up the sword, that we are to be peaceful people. And certainly there are certain branches of the Christian church who are convinced of this as well. I want to suggest to you that that is not what Jesus was talking about. Jesus was talking about something different here. We know that he's not talking about pacifism. We know that he's not saying that you should never, for example, serve in the military. Because on more than one occasion, Jesus encountered Roman soldiers. Uh, there's a perfect example of this earlier in the same Gospel of Matthew. Keep your finger in Matthew chapter 26 and turn back to Matthew chapter 8. It's been a long time since we actually looked at this event, but it's worthy of our attention once again. Matthew chapter 8, verse 5, when he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. A centurion was a Roman officer. He commanded about 100 men, a company of Roman soldiers. So this is a high-ranking individual, and he comes to Jesus. Now, there are a number of reasons why Jesus could have rejected him. First of all, he could have rejected him because he was a Gentile. He was not a Jew. The second reason why Jesus could have rejected him is because he worked for the empire, this pagan polytheistic Roman empire. And the third reason why Jesus could have rejected him is if Jesus was a pacifist and was endorsing pacifism, then he certainly wouldn't have been willing to listen to a Roman soldier. Roman soldiers were hard bitten. These were tough guys. But this man comes to Jesus in humility. His servant is lying sick. He asks Jesus for help. Verse 8, but the centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man come under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. Now, let me tell you something. It takes a lot for Jesus to marvel. But Jesus marveled at this man and said to those who followed him, to Jews, truly, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel 
have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline a table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Jesus healed the servant of the Roman centurion, but never once, you'll notice, did Jesus ever say, all right, as he said to the woman caught in adultery, now you need to go and leave your life of sin. In other words, Jesus seemed to be all right with the fact that this man was serving in a military capacity. And I would suggest to you that we need good Christians who serve in the military who see that they have a responsibility to serve something greater than self. Here's the second reason why we should not take this as an endorsement of pacifism. It's because of the distinction that St. Augustine made in his great book, The City of God. He made a distinction between two kingdoms, what he called the city of God and the city of man. And he said, basically, we are citizens of both kingdoms. As Christians, we are ultimately citizens of the kingdom of God. But at the same time, you and I are citizens of earthly kingdoms. And we are subject to the authority of both of those. The only times when we are not subject to the authority of both is that when the city of man or the kingdoms of men come into conflict with the city of God, then we must always choose allegiance to God over allegiance to men. But otherwise, we are subject to both of these authorities. So if Jesus is not endorsing pacifism when he says those who live by the sword will, will perish by the sword, then what exactly was Jesus doing? Well, I want to suggest to you that what Jesus was really talking about here is the use of the sword to advance the kingdom. You know, there have been times in the history of the church when Christians have tried to do that, when they have tried to advance the kingdom of God by force of arms. And I can tell you it has never ended well. Think about that time when Constantine became converted to Christianity. The Roman Empire became officially Christian beginning at that moment. And that meant that everybody who was a citizen of the Roman Empire had to acknowledge Christianity as the privileged religion. Constantine supplanted Christianity with all of these other religions. But what is interesting was that when it became the law that you had to become a Christian, all of a sudden the influence of Christianity began to wane. Another period in the history of the world when this was true was at the time of the Crusades, when Christians tried to invade the Middle East and force Muslims, force Muslims at the point of the sword to convert to Christianity. Here we are, hundreds of years later, a thousand years later, and the people that we did that to have still not forgiven us. Or you think about the time of the Puritans. This was the dark time for the Puritans. You know, the Puritans get a bad rap these days. People say, oh, well, you're puritanical. That is meant as, a, as an insult. But the Puritans were really an extraordinary group of people. They were faithful people. And yet one of the darkest periods in the history of Puritanism in England was when the ministers, the Puritan ministers, began to acquire great wealth during the time of Oliver Cromwell. 
Conversion can never be by force of arms. And that's what Jesus was saying here. He's saying the kingdom of God does not advance by means of armies or by means of empire. It is not made of bricks, mortar, and stone. It is a kingdom that is established in men's hearts. Now, Paul acknowledges the fact that you and I are engaged in a spiritual battle. The apostle acknowledges that fact. That's why in Ephesians chapter 6, he says, put on the full armor of God. And then he goes on to describe the pieces of the armor, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, the feet fitted with a, with a righteousness that comes from God. He talks about all the pieces of armor. He even talks about picking up the sword, which is the word of God. The only piece of equipment that is not only for defense, but for offense, to strike out against the enemy. Paul acknowledges the fact that you and I, as Christian people, are in war. We are at war with the culture around us. We are in a struggle against three things in particular. The world, with its attitudes and its beliefs and its manner of behaving. The world, the flesh, there's a struggle that is taking place within us, within ourselves. That struggle between the old man and the new man. And our struggle is against the devil. That's what Paul says, that you may take your stand against the evil one, that you may quench the flaming darts of the devil. So Paul acknowledges the fact that, yes, we are engaged in a struggle. It is a war unlike any the world has ever known. There is this great conflict, this cosmic battle that is taking place between the forces of God and the forces of evil. And you and I are caught up in it. And it is a struggle that we face from the moment we are born until the moment we die. This is why the, the church refers to Christians in this life as members of the church militant. And it's one of the reasons why in a former age they used to write hymns like this. Onward Christian soldiers marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. You know, it's unfortunate. Many people today find those kinds of hymns to be abhorrent, to be insulting. But the reality is they acknowledge a great spiritual truth that we are in a conflict. And yet, while Paul acknowledges that fact, he also acknowledges that the way we fight and the weapons we have are different from the weapons of the world. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power, to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every loft and opinion brought against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obedience in Christ. We are engaged in a struggle, but our struggle is different, and our weapons are different. They are even more effective than the weapons of this world. One of the great hymns of the church written by Henry Smart back in 1836, we sing it from time to time, one of my favorites captured this, captures this idea very well. Henry Smart wrote, Lead on, O King Eternal, till sin's fierce war shall cease, and holiness shall whisper the sweet amen of peace. For not with swords loud crashing, nor roll of stirring drums, but with deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. That's what Jesus was imparting to Peter there in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's an important lesson for us. We need to recognize that we're in a struggle. 
But you're never going to bring peace to this world by trying to smite it with the power of the sword. Well, this time in the Garden of Gethsemane ends, as might be expected, on a very somber note. Impetuous Peter had pulled out his sword. He had struck off the high priest's servant's ear. Jesus, of course, in John's gospel, we're told, healed that ear. But while Peter had been so impetuous, so courageous at the beginning, by the time the story concludes, Peter, like the rest of the disciples, has run away. He's dropped his sword, and he's fled into the night. One of the disciples, we're told, probably John, fled into the night when they grabbed hold of his tunic. He ran so hard that it tore it from his body, and he ran off into the night naked. And look at how the story ends. Verse 56, but all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. This section begins with Jesus in fellowship with his disciples. But that fellowship begins to wear thin. One of them betrays him there in that upper room and goes off into the night. The others go with him into the Garden of Gethsemane, but they can't keep their eyes awake. And Jesus is left alone. Finally, when his enemies come to arrest him, there is this brief moment in which they defend the Lord, but eventually their strength and their courage fails them. And they desert him in his hour of greatest need. And Jesus is left alone. If there's one more question that we need to ask ourselves at the end of this particular study, We've already asked a number of questions. What was it that compelled Judas Iscariot to do what he did? Why was it that the Jewish religious leaders came and arrested Jesus at this particular moment? What are we meant to learn from the life and the example of Peter? If there's one more question we need to ask ourselves is this, what are we made of? If we had been there in the Garden of Gethsemane, what would we have done? And it's an important question because we are often faced with similar situations in which we are given an opportunity to defend Jesus Christ, which we are given an opportunity to bear witness to Jesus Christ. And the real question is this, what are you and I made of? What would we do? What do we do when the opportunities to speak out for Christ boldly, courageously present themselves? Do we do it? Or do we, like the others, shrink back and find ourselves fleeing off into the night out of fear of what the world might do to us? I think if we're honest, I think if we're honest, we would really have to admit that we're probably no better than Peter. We're probably a mixture of impetuousness and at the same time, cowardice. I know that's true of my life. And yet at the same time, I want you to notice what the resurrection of Jesus Christ will do to these men. Three days later, Jesus is going to be raised from the dead. And as a consequence of his resurrection power, these men are going to be completely 
changed. Those who fled into the night will be standing in the streets of Jerusalem, preaching to the very same Sanhedrin that had condemned Jesus to death. Peter and John are going to go up to the temple and heal a man. And when they are accused of, of doing this, they are going to say, you think it's by our own strength or our own power that this man stands before you healed. But I tell you, it is by the name of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, but God raised from the dead. When the apostles are dragged before the Sanhedrin, the very same Sanhedrin, incidentally, that had condemned Jesus to death and truth be known, had the power to condemn them to death and ordered them to stop speaking in the name of Christ. What did the apostles say? They say, you must judge for yourself whether we are to obey men or to obey God, but we will never stop speaking in the name of Jesus Christ. And indeed, they never did. See, that's what the resurrection power of Jesus Christ can make of us. But in order for that to happen, we need to acknowledge what we really are. What we really are is weak, vacillating men and women who in some respects are no better than Peter. Given the right circumstances, we would all do what he did. In the one minute, be courageous. In the next minute, be an absolute coward. In the one minute, defend him. We will go with you even to death. In the next minute, deny him three times. If Peter teaches us anything at all, it teaches us that we cannot trust ourselves even in our best moments, my friends. But even in our worst moments, we need not despair. For his power is made perfect in our weakness. Next week, when we come back together, we are going to begin to take a look at the trials of Jesus. And there was more than one trial. Uh, there was the Jewish trial in which Jesus was brought before the Jewish religious leaders. That was actually a trial in three parts. And then there was a second trial in which Jesus was sent by the Jewish religious leaders to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. And that was a trial that took part in three as well. So we're going to take a look at both of those next week. It's very important, not only in terms of the historical record, but also in terms of how it was the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, how all of this from first to last was a part of God's sovereign plan for our salvation. Let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. And um, again, if you have questions, you can go ahead and begin typing those in, send them to Rachel, and um, we'll take a couple of minutes, maybe just two or three minutes to answer any questions that you may have. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we give you thanks and praise for this account that we have studied tonight, for Jesus' willingness to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies for us and for our salvation. We learn a great deal here, Lord, from Judas Iscariot. So easy for us to look at Judas, but Judas was a weak man as we are weak. So easy to stand in judgment of Peter. Peter, who was so impetuous. Peter, who was always acting before thinking. But the reality is we are very much like Peter as well. Grant us the grace to live on the other side of the empty tomb. To know that that same power which transformed these men from cowards into courageous warriors is a power that is available to us as well. Grant us the grace, men and women, to be transformed that we may fear nothing 
but the loss of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.